Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Twice a year, Lighthouse Writers Workshop brings in a renowned writer to Denver for its Inside the Writer's Studio series. The featured writer of the Spring 2012 Writer's Studio was poet Thomas Lux. Mr. Lux sat down for a lively and engaging conversation with Lighthouse's own Michael Henry. Well, thank you for coming. Um, this, uh, is, it's a very exciting day for me. Thomas Lux is one of my favorite all-time poets, so... Welcome to the springtime edition of uh, the Inside the Writer's Studio, which in this case is also the um, Cinco de Mayo Deluxe Edition. Um, for those of you who don't know me, pretty much everybody here knows me, don't you? Okay, well, I'm uh, Mike Henry. I'm the Executive Director of Lighthouse Writer's Workshop. Um, Lighthouse is an independent creative writing center. You, pr- you probably all say this with me, but you don't, you don't have to. <laughs> Um, devoted to the art and craft of creative writing because we believe in the transformative power of literature. Perhaps you're, you aren't aware of this, and if not, I'm going to um, tell you now. Tonight, there's going to be a full moon. Did you hear about this? Yes. It's pretty exciting. It's the biggest and brightest full moon of the year. And if you're into science or if you like to speak Greek in your spare time, I know there's one person out there who does that. Um, you might also know that the Greek word lux means light. Latin? Latin. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Get it right. <laughs> That's really funny because I took Latin from seventh grade all the way through senior year. Okay, maybe it's not funny. Maybe it's a little sad. Sorry about that. (laughs) Lux is also the standard measurement of illumination. So I think it's pretty exciting to know that we're going to be totally and beautifully illuminated tonight with all kinds of Lux. Sorry. That's the last last pun, I swear. Um, And now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's sort of funny because um, many of our recent visiting authors have... um, Names that carry meaning. So over the years, we've had a wolf, a moor, a strayed, an offit, a gutkind, gut kind, and a car. And now we have a lux. Thanks, thanks for laughing. I know whose laugh that was. That was great. <sighs> Our guest, Thomas Lux, was born in Northampton, Massachusetts, son of a milkman and a Sears and Roebuck switchboard operator, neither of whom graduated from high school. Lux was raised on a dairy farm. He was, according to those who knew him in high school, and this is from Wikipedia, the ultimate resource. He was very good at baseball, basketball, and golf. Classmates also recalled that he had a quote-unquote terrific sense of humor. He graduated from Emerson College in Boston, which is also my alma mater, where he also served as poet in residence in the early 1970s. Since then, Thomas Lux has been a member of the writing faculty at several universities, including Sarah Lawrence College, Warren Wilson MFA program, and the University of California at Irvine. He's the author of a dozen books of poetry, and he's been the recipient of three NEA grants, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the prestigious Kingsley Tufts Award. He currently holds the Bourne Chair in Poetry at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where he also directs the McEver Program for Visiting Writers. Writer Sven Burkett says, 
Lux may be one of the poets on whom the future of the genre depends. He has the stuff to win readers back from their unhappy places of exile. I know that place. The Boston Globe says, Lux's poems convey a sense of having been written not for self-expression, but rather in order to clear the air, to arrive at what Frost called a momentary stay against confusion. In contemporary poetry, such poems are the exception rather than the rule. The San, Franciscan, San, excuse me, San Francisco Chronicle adds, not since Plath has hysteria looked this kissable. He's pretty kissable. You'll see. You'll see. <laughs> I first encountered the poet Thomas Lux in Boston when I was a graduate student. He came to Emerson College for a reading invited by his good friend and my mentor at the time, poet Bill Knott. I can easily say it was the best reading I've ever attended. Before then, I suppose I really didn't know that poetry could be exceptionally funny, weird, and so full of imagination and opinion. I'd always thought poetry readings were supposed to be like Catholic Mass. That's why I went to graduate school for poetry. Uh, Monotonal, grave, and weighty. Tom's reading was part comedy show, part sing-along, part creativity lecture, part entomology lesson, and part collective dream. Thomas Luxett also brought his daughter to the reading. This was, I think, 1994, 1995. She was maybe seven or eight years old, I'm kind of guessing, and she had this amazingly wild and unkempt poof of hair. It was fantastic. You could just tell that she was a great kid. At one point, Tom finished a reading a poem, and he turned and he asked her, what would you think of that one? And she was sitting on the floor, busily coloring um, her artwork laid on the, on, the, on the chair in front of her, facing away from Tom. And she said, eh, it was okay. <laughs> Tom loved that. And perhaps, perhaps if it weren't for that exchange, I never would have had kids. In addition to his great sense of humor and his superior parenting skills, Thomas Lux is an important poet because I believe he's an honest poet, and his poems abide by the old tenet of William Carlos Williams that a poem is a machine made of words. A poem, in other words, is made to do work. This work is ostensibly to convey meaning and emotion, to introduce ideas and encourage one's imagination, to make us see things anew, and therefore to love them or to forgive them or loathe them, in short, to care about them all over again. Oh, and also this, a poem is a machine made to entertain. Tom's poetry, as you you will hear, engages the physical world while entertaining us in order to explore the mysteries of this world. His poems are filled with real world things, and this is something I learned over and over again from Bill Knott. Real-world things like animals and insects, pop culture icons, political figures from our time and times past, as well as small, mundane objects that endure because they mean something to us. These things matter, his poems are saying. They are the stuff of our reality. They are the symbols of who we've been, who we are, and who we want to be. They are the things that define our greatest aspirations and our greatest fears. And in this way, sometimes ironically, I find his poems to be generously forgiving and hopeful. Thomas Lux is an important poet, too, because he's a teaching poet, which means that he is a perpetually learning poet. I remember back at that reading in 1994, he said he tried to read 100 books a year. 
Last night he said that's about 60 or 70. Now he's, he's slowed down a little bit. <laughs> Um, that was really very, very humbling and shocking to me when I heard him say that. And now, you know, over the years, even today, it's still the thing I hear whenever I have some free time and I'm about to turn on the TV to watch hockey or baseball. I hear this voice, you should be reading, you fool. And I picture Tom Lux sitting somewhere reading a book for crying out loud. <laughs> In interviews, Tom has said that he loves teaching and he takes it very seriously, as if it is a tremendous gift, a lucky life, and I agree with him. It sure beats, as he refers to in one of his poems, in being in charge of the village dunghill. Finally, Tom Lux is an important poet because his poems also teach us how to be. If nothing else, I love, above all, his poem, An Horatian Notion, which tells us that the creativity and inspiration we have do not come from the muse or the ether or from pretty flowers or full moons or gorgeous sunsets or pretty women. Inspiration and art come from one place, from hard work. If you don't want to give the whole, I don't want to give the whole poem away, and I'm hoping he's going to read it for us, but I'll just give you the last line. And with that, you go to work. So let's now get to work. Please join me in welcoming Thomas Lux. Going to start with that comment. Thank you. That was really nice, Michael. Thank you. It's it's really nice to to, to be here. Uh, I don't know. I, I go around quite a bit uh, for for poetry kind of things, and one of the the, the things that I have noticed and, and that I think is a, a terrific sign, uh, not only for poetry but for our culture, is that there are more and more. Uh, places like this, uh, community uh, places, uh, community centers, art centers uh, in, in the community, no longer just connected to universities, uh, all over the country. And that's a very positive and, and very healthy uh, thing for, for all of the arts. Uh, if, if, uh, if the arts are confined only to colleges and universities, uh, that, that limits them. But more and more often, uh, they're in the community. So I'm, I'm particularly happy to be here and grateful to have been invited. I am going to start. I plan to do this even before Michael mentioned that poem, uh, An Horatian Notion. Uh, I am going to start with reading that. It's a kind of Ars Poetica. Uh, uh, almost all poets write an Ars Poetica one time or another, uh, sometimes several, but uh, they're, they're a, a poetic uh, example uh, of the art form or, or definition of the art form by any particular uh, writer. Horace, uh, Horatian is Horace, the great Latin poet, who said uh, uh, somewhere, I think in his letters, uh, that uh, poems are made things. Uh, they're made things. They don't just come down your arm. They don't just have to do with uh, inspiration. You need to feel something uh, deeply, uh, but, but then you, as the last line of this poem says, you go to work. And Horatian notion. The thing gets made, gets built... And you're the slave who rolls the log beneath the block, then another, then pushes the block, then pulls a log from the rear back to the front again, and then again it goes beneath the block, and so on. It's how a thing gets made. Not because you're sensitive, or you get genetic lucky, or God says, here's a nice family, seven children, let's see. This one in charge of the village Dunghill, 
these two are going to die of boobos. Uh, this one, Kierkegaard. This one, a drooling nincompoop. This one, clerk. This one, Cooper. No. You need to love the thing you do. Birdhouse building, painting tulips exclusively, whatever. And then you do it. So consciously driven by your unconscious that the thing becomes a wedge that splits a stone and between the halves the wedge then grows, i.e. the thing is solid but with a soul, a life of its own. Inspiration, the dane, the gift, the bolt of fire down the arm that makes the art grow up. Give me, please, a break. You make the thing because you love the thing. And you love the thing because someone else loved it enough to make you love it. And with that, your heart like a tent peg pounded towards the earth's core. And with that, your heart on a beam burns through the ionosphere. And with that, you go to work. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I saw on a bridge, an overpass bridge on a highway, a very inaccessible uh, place, uh, where somebody had written, we all have seen the kind of graffiti that uh, people write along highways, but somebody had written in huge spray paint letters on this bridge. It was outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, uh, somebody had written, I love you, sweat heart. <laughs> that's the name of the poem. Can I, that I think that's a Greek word, isn't it? Can I get that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't hear, I didn't hear that. This is the water. No. Is that oh, my yeah. water, or did I take it? Uh, it's well, yours now. I, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Who knows what, where I've been. <laughs> Thanks. It said the antibiotics would kick in in about a day, so I should be good. <laughs> sorry. That's the name of the poem. I love you, uh, sweetheart. <laughs> A man risked his life to write the words. A man hung upside down, an idiot friend holding his legs, would spray paint to write the words on a girder 50 feet above a highway. And his beloved, the next morning, driving to work, his words are not meant to be so unique. Does she recognize his handwriting? Did he hint her at her doorstep the night before of something special, darling, tomorrow? <laughs> and did he call her at work expecting her to faint with delight at his celebration of her, his passion, his risk? She will know I love her now. The world will know my love for her. A man risked his life to write the words. Love is like this at the bone. We hope love is like this, sweetheart. All sore and dumb and dangerous, ignited, blessed, always, regardless, no exceptions, always in blazing matters like these, blessed. So I make fun of that guy a little bit, but uh, I end up, he's doing it for love, so that's, uh, that's a positive thing. A couple times I've been astonished in my life. Uh, People have said to me, why did you assume that that was 
a man who wrote that. Uh, <laughs> practically, practically my, my answer would be to laugh, but a couple of times I say, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, women do stupid things for love, but not that stupid. <laughs> Somebody also told me after a reading one time that that was a very famous piece of graffiti in, uh, around Asheville, and in fact that was their, their mother's pet name for them when they were a child, Sweatheart. <laughs> <coughs> Michael mentioned my daughter. She's now 24, but she was about seven or eight then, and, and when she came to reading, she often had to. She didn't have any choice. Uh, she would color and stuff like that and uh, uh, read, whatever. Uh, but if I read a poem that had anything to do with her, she wanted to stand up and take a bow uh, to, the, to the audience. But this poem is called A Little Tooth. And there's a brief story with this, I'll tell you. Uh, there's a thing in New York and other cities called uh, Poetry in Motion, where they put uh, poems uh, on these really nice posters, and they put them on the subways and the buses, uh, right up there uh, with you know Dr. Z, the skin doctor. And there's, on the other side of the poem, there's... Uh, uh, an orthodontist ad for an orthodontist, and then these uh, poems. They're all very short. Uh, and I was just to think, boy, that'd be cool to have a poem on the, on the subway. And then I noticed that everybody uh, who had poems there were dead, and then I said, okay, uh, uh, I can wait. Uh, but uh, one day, about four or five years ago, I get a call from my daughter. She's on a subway in New York, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, that, that poem you wrote about me is on the subway. And she took a picture of it. They never told me about it. The publisher and the people who do this never bothered to tell me. Uh, but that was the coolest way to find out about it. And probably the best, I tell people, better than being in the New Yorker, better than being published anywhere, to be on a subway uh, and uh, have people see it like that. A little tooth, it's called. Your baby grows a tooth, then two, and four, and five, then she wants some meat directly from the bone. It's all over. She'll learn some words. She'll fall in love with Cretans, dolts, a sweet talker on his way to jail. <laughs> and you, your wife, get old, fly-blown, and rue nothing. You did. You loved. Your feet are sore. It's dusk. Your daughter's tall. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody who stands at a podium or anything like that uh, and, and says they don't appreciate applause would be lying. But uh, you don't have to applause after uh, applaud after every, every poem. I heard Billy Collins say one time that when that happens, he gets back to his room and he hears the poems talking to each other in a book, and one poem is going, "They liked you more than they liked me." <laughs> And stuff like that. And, uh, and then one poem is kind of crying, you know, sweeping. But, but if you want to uh, applaud uh, afterwards, it would be great. This is called Refrigerator 1957. More like a vault. You pull the handle out, and on the shelves, not a lot. And what there is, a boiled potato in a bag, a chicken carcass under foil, looking dispirited, drained, mugged. This is not a place to go in hunger or hope. But just to the right of the middle of the middle door shelf, 
on fire, a lit from within red, heart red, sexual red, wet neon red, shining red in their liquid, exotic, aloof, slumming in such company, a jar of maraschino cherries. <laughs> Three quarters full, fiery globes like strippers at a church social. <laughs> maraschino cherries, maraschino the only foreign word I knew. Not once did I see these cherries employed, not in a drink, nor on top of a glob of ice cream, or just pop one in your mouth. Not once. The same jar there through an entire childhood of dull dinners. Bald meat, pocked peas, and, see above, boiled potatoes. Maybe they came over from the old country. Family heirlooms or were status symbols bought with a piece of the purse paycheck from a sweatshop which beat the pig farm in Bohemia, handed down from my grandparents to my parents to be someday mine than my child's. They were beautiful. And if I never ate one, it was because I knew it might be missed or because I knew it would not be replaced and because you do not eat that which rips your heart with joy. <laughs> the only thing, okay. Uh, the only kind of colorful thing uh, ever there. I asked my mother uh, at one point what they were there for. And uh, uh, she said, uh, uh, she put half of one on, on my, half of my grandmother's uh, grapefruit about once a month. So that's why they lasted uh, so long. <laughs> this is called Plague Victims Catapulted Over Walls into Besieged City. <laughs> Early Germ Warfare. The dead hurled this way turn like wheels in the sky. Look, there goes Larry the shoemaker, barefoot, over the wall. And Mary sausage stuffer, see how she flies. And the Hatter twins, both at once, soar over the parapet. Little Tommy's elbow bent as if in a salute. And his sister, Matilda, she follows him, arms outstretched through the air, just as she did on earth. Is, it was a, a thing that they really did do. Uh, it was a kind of early germ warfare. This is called the Corner of Paris and Porter. Corner of Paris and Porter. You ever wonder what's be behind these things? <laughs> I like to see somebody like this go down and, and then disappear. Uh, <laughs> Meet me there. You remember the corner of Paris and Porter. We stood on that spot after walking our city all day, dropped off the earth, lost each in the other. We'd live in the house there, we said. We loved the sway back porch, the elms in the yard towering. We stopped in the thick, still shade of one, the sidewalk raised and cracked by its roots. On the curb, a mailbox, a gate, flag up, a dry birdbath in the yard. And in the driveway, a yellow car. This was lucky, a yellow car, a child once told me. 
the sunlight a wall slamming down outside the shade's circle. Two old sisters, we guess, lived there, two lace antimacassars on two wicker porch chairs. We'd knock on the door, tell them we loved their house, which they'd then bequeath to us on the corner, the house we found by chance, chirps and child calls, the clanking of lunch dishes, though we saw not one child or bird. The mailman, we never saw him but knew his name was Steve, would leave great piles of letters the grocery and the garden would provide. It was the corner of Paris and Porter in that part of the city where we'd never walked before. It was south and farther south, past downtown, beyond the meat district, the fish market, past the street of clocks, the tripe stalls, the brick kilns, the casket factories. We turned East, a few blocks north, there was nothing but warehouses and long blocks of lots, tall fences topped by barbed wire, behind which, what? We walked over a bridge, the train tracks beneath were thick with weeds, and there it was, a neighborhood, houses, yards, shrubs. We were talking and talking, I don't know how many miles lost in each the other. And though we did not know where we were, we knew where we were going the corner of Paris and Porter. Remember, the day was blue and clear. I recall the exact path of an ant, the mica glinting in the curbstone, a curtain parting momentarily at your laugh. I could have drowned in your hair. Meet me there. Today, don't be late on the corner of Paris and Porter. Okay. There are a few are there any kids in the audience, because this poem has a monkey in it. I, I, I like monkeys. Most children like monkeys. Called to help the monkey cross the river. To help the monkey cross the river, which he must cross by swimming for fruits and nuts. To help him, I sit with my rifle on a platform high in a tree, same side of the river as the hungry monkey. (laughs) How does this assist him? When he swims for it, I look first upriver. Predators move faster with the current than against it. If a crocodile is aimed from upriver to eat the monkey, and an anaconda from downriver burns with the same ambition. I do the math, algebra, angles, rate of monkey, croc, and snake speed. And if, if it looks as though the anaconda or the croc will reach the monkey before he attains the river's far bank, I raise my rifle and fire one, two, three, even four times into the river just behind the monkey to hurry him up a little. <laughs> Shoot the snake, the crocodile, they're just doing their jobs. But the monkey, the monkey has little hands like a child's, and the smart ones in a cage can be taught to smile. <laughs> a kid uh, asked me after reading that one time, a high school kid maybe uh, said, uh, is, that a, is that a poem about being a parent or a, or a teacher? And I said, I thought about it a little bit. I said, you know what? Uh, that wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but that's that in fact what it is about. <laughs> uh, lots of times, you know, it comes a point you got to, you still want to watch over your children, but you got to let them uh, go a little bit too. But, uh, you know, you, you can still give them a little bit of a kick in the ass uh, now and then. <coughs> 
This is called the joy bringer. The joy bringer. The joy bringer breaks the light through the oak leaves at dawn. The joy bringer injects the red bird's red. The joy bringer brings the green, lets the cup runneth over into a saucer from which you can sip. Gives fish the river, the river the fish. If by two inches you avoid a piano falling on your head and later at the hospital fall in love with a doctor who removes a few splinters of ivory and black piano lacquer from your left calf, the joy bringer arranged that. Also, the chilled artesian water spilling from a pipe only two inches from the ground from which you drank on your hands and knees on a few boards or branches. You bowed in the muck and drank that sweet cold reaching up. You drank among the skunk cabbage ferns, a small brook at your back. Again, guess what? The joy bringer. In fact, let us praise the joy bringer for these seven things. One, right lung, two, left lung, three, heart, four, left brain, five, right brain, six, tongue, seven, the body to put them in. Thank you, joy bringer. And thank ye, thank ye too, for just mown hay cut an inch from its roots to bleed its perfume into the air. <laughs> That's my favorite smell of all things, uh, new mown hay. I'm going to read a couple more poems. Uh, uh, three. This is called The Moths Who Come in the Night to Drink Our Tears. The moths who come in the night to drink our tears always leave quenched, though they're drinking in composition seawater, which does not make them insane as it does parched humans when we drink it, even with our big, big bodies. If you knew a leper's tears did not contain the bacillus leprae, would you let him weep on your chest? Let the moths come. Let the sand woman and man come. Let Morpheus and Dreamadum come unto me and my beloveds. Let the moths come and drink of the disburdening waters. I said to my mother a few years ago before she passed, uh, I said, Ma, all my friends are writing memoirs, and a lot of my friends are writing memoirs. And I can't write one because I, I had such a, a, a normal, uh, boring uh, childhood. Now, you weren't a drunk. Uh, Dad wasn't a... Uh, a drug addict. Nobody ever, uh, you know, sodomized me in the hayloft or anything like that. <laughs> she looked kind of thoughtful for, for a few seconds, and then she said, hey, you could write about that time your horse got stuck in the mud. <laughs> I, said, I don't think that'll cover a whole memoir, Mom. Right. Would have been better if you would have abused me. But I did manage to write this poem called Outline for my memoir. Uh, someday, maybe, if something ever happens to me. The time my horse got stuck in the mud. <laughs> Two paragraphs, no, one. When blind and right eye took some medicine, I could see again. Scary detail, when the doctor first shined a little light into my pupil, he drew back, startled. Three paragraphs. 
Later, high school, broken heart. Since this happens rarely, milk for three or four paragraphs. Milk. Speaking of which, I helped my father pedal it in a square white truck in a small round town. College, my 20s, I recall little to interest you. I did cover many pages with writing and read and turned a thousand pages for every one on which I wrote. Don't see how I can say what else happened then and be honest. My 30s wore funny glasses. Maybe a two-sentence self-deprecatory joke. My 40s, 50s, the best part was a child named Claudia. I could say some funny things about her, but so could every father. Besides, family is personal, private, blood. With above exception of daughter, those two decades, a paragraph, maybe two, if I insert journal entry on the day of her birth. I can't bear to write of her mother, whom I hurt. Lately, read like a hungry machine in a new room in a house I love. There is still my child and friends and a beloved named Jenny. My vital signs are vital. I tend a little garden, have a job. No way I could write more than a few sentences on these years under the sentence again of happiness. If I live a hundred lives, then I'll know more truths, maybe, and lies to write my memoir, novella-sized. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. About right time. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. See, that's better at the end. Let people clap. <laughs> now I don't have to worry about the hearing those voices. <laughs> the bureau. Although I think the one poem about the, the, the poison people flying through the air, that might be feel a little insecure. It, it, yeah, just it, a little. It does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have a few questions for you. Shoot. Would you mind answering some? No, shoot. Great. Shoot. Excellent. Happy to. Um, I'm glad you ended with that poem because I wanted to ask you a few questions about your, um, your upbringing, your v- very boring upbringing, I guess. Um, <laughs> In, in relation to the writer's life. So um, you grew up in, I guess, shall I say, a fairly unliterary world? Yes, that would be, that would be fair to say. Yeah, there weren't any books in my house or anything like that. Uh, uh, well, my parents read, but, but they, they read kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, my, my dad liked to read like Zane Gray and things like that. Uh, uh, but, uh, but it wasn't anything, you know, that... It just wasn't part of uh, their experience, uh, or, or practically anybody I, I knew uh, then growing up. I did have an auntie who was an English teacher, and uh, she actually, uh, I remember her giving me a few books in the, in the 50s uh, to read. But, um, but yeah, it was 1950s in a, a small town, uh, Massachusetts, western part of the state, uh, I didn't have any idea that there was there was such a thing as contemporary poetry because uh, all the high school textbooks uh, ended in about 1945 uh, before I was born. Uh, I, I was aware of uh, Mr. Frost, uh, but that was about all. Uh, so um, it was a 
was a stranger or uh, probably pretty normal, probably, probably like most of us, uh, like yeah. most people in, in those days. Yeah. So how do you think that kind of childhood created a poet? That's a tough question. I don't know. I did read a lot myself. I mean, I, I, by the time I was in junior high, I started reading on my own, mostly novels. Uh, uh, but I got lucky. When I went to college, Michael said we, we both went to the same school many years apart, Emerson College in Boston. It was the only college I could get into. Uh, uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, and when I got there in my... In my junior year, they, for the first time ever, they hired a real poet to, be, to teach poetry writing. And she was my teacher for two years. Her name was Helen Chasen. And uh, she was a terrific, uh, fundamental uh, teacher. Uh, uh, she she uh, uh, insisted we learn the rules before we tried to break the rules. Uh, uh, she uh, taught us to loathe abstractions uh, and, and the craft. She she insisted that we learn about the craft and the music of poetry and, and, and its rhythms. So I was just really in the right place at the right time uh, to get that kind of uh, yeah. uh, teaching. <clears throat> and there was an, also another professor there who was a, a publisher. James Randall had a press called uh, Pim Randall Press, which was a very good uh, independent press. And uh, he published my first chapbook when I was still an undergraduate, and then a few years later, my first full-length book. So I had that incredible luxury, which at the time I didn't know was so special, of having a publisher for my first book before I even finished it, for my first full-length book. As an undergrad? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they probably told me that that, that summer uh, or uh, maybe in the fall of, say, 70. This would have been 1970. Uh, maybe 71 or something like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that was... I know how hard it is to get first books published, and... Uh, uh, but but I had this, I, I had a publisher before uh, uh, it was done. So it was just really That's lucky. Great. I was just really in the right place at the at the right uh, time. Yeah. Um, so that's how it started. Did you know that you were going to be an English major when you started? No, I started out as a speech pathology and audiology major. Uh, I wanted to work with uh, special needs kids, and uh, uh, but I did become an English uh, major when I started yeah. uh, writing. And do you remember what it was like when you first began to write? Bad. The writing was really bad. Uh, 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 and you knew that? Yeah, I did. Well, I knew it enough uh, to, to, to know I had to keep working, but I was also ignorant enough about it to, 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 to know, not know how difficult it is and uh, how really hard it is to, to write uh, well. Uh, so it was kind of a, a perfect balance in, in that way. I was really, again, just lucky. Yeah. It's lucky. And that reminds me of Horatio Notion again, that idea of the modest hard work that you need to do in order to become better at your craft. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, one of the things that, uh, that my teacher, Helen Chasen, uh, taught me, taught us uh, that you know, it, it, was, it was draft after draft. It wasn't, uh, you didn't just sit down and you felt like it. Everybody knows uh, that a dancer, a ballet dancer, for example, uh, when they make one of those beautiful leaps, uh, look like a gazelle, they make it look simple. We know they, they had to sweat blood and their toes had to bleed. They had to practice that for years to make that look simple. Everybody knows you can't just pick up the violin and play it. But sometimes people think, well, I have language and I have feelings and I know what a poem looks like. It's kind of skinny on the page. That's even easier. <laughs> 
than writing prose. You've got to fill up the whole page if you're writing prose. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's kind of naive. It's an, a craft. It's an art form. Uh, writing is rewriting. Uh, writing is revision. Uh, I never know where a poem is going to uh, go when I, when I start it. Uh, I think of it as a kind of a process that uh, I'm hoping to discover something. I'm hoping to discover something I didn't know I, uh, that I felt or that I was uh, uh, thinking about. I like uh, very much what Mr. Frost said. He said, I, wrote, I write in order to find out what it is I didn't know I knew. Uh, and I also like that momentary stay against confusion uh, definition of, of his, uh, uh, too. So my poems start with a little, sometimes often a title, uh, uh, a, a rhythm, uh, sometimes an individual word even, and, uh, and then I just kind of bang away at them and uh, uh, put them away if I get stuck on a draft and, and come back to it the, the next day. I often work on several poems at the same time, so if I get stuck on one, then I can just go on uh, to the other, and they they grow gradually. A group of them will grow gradually together over weeks, uh, always months, and sometimes even uh, years. Not every single day, you know, working on it every day. But uh, 25, 30 drafts is not unusual uh, for me. And then the idea, of course, is like the dancers. You're supposed to make it sound like somebody's just some guy's just talking. Uh, uh, spontaneously, but for me, and for me anyway, to, in order to do that, I have to sweat blood. I remember at the reading you said that, and I'll never forget that, and I use that all the time in my classes. I say, Thomas Lux said at a reading in 1994 that it takes him 50 drafts to get to the first real draft of the poem, and then another 50 drafts to make it sound spontaneous and off the cuff. Well, probably not that many, but well. it takes me five, five drafts to get a a bad first draft, a bad full first draft. So I have to work on a poem about five different times, five different days, uh, uh, in order to get a rough first draft. Yeah. And usually, is that where you're working on the subject matter or the scene or detail? Just trying to see what happens. Yeah. Just trying to discover where the poem wants to lead me. I have to make almost kind of uh, uh, raids on a poem. I have to sneak up on it and, and make a raid on it bef- uh, and... And, and see what happens, and, and try not to be too self-conscious uh, about it. And then at other times, I have to be uh, fiercely self-conscious and, and pay attention to uh, the minutest uh, details of uh, punctuation, syntax, the sounds uh, in relation to other sounds uh, nearby, etc. Yeah. So, And that's a conscious, conscious decision when you're going to yeah. turn on that, and, yeah. uh, that yeah. more rational kind yeah. of mind. Yeah, yeah. I just know when it's time to do that, and then I, and I do that. Then I let it go again uh, unconsciously, and then, then try to seize it again uh, consciously, uh, right. uh, back and forth. Trial and error. Yeah. And it seems like I like that idea of, of surprising the subconscious in order to discover whatever it is that you want to say. It's kind of an interesting idea. And would you, do you always discover something in your poems? No. No, sometimes they just don't fly. Yeah, like lots of things. What do you do with those? Uh, if they have any good lines in them, I'll save them and uh, put them in a notebook. And if they're good lines, they'll find uh, a, a home someday in the right uh, poems. But otherwise, I just let them go. Would you say what you discover has changed over time? Yeah, because uh, everyone is different. The discovery is, is, is different on every, every poem. So, yeah, yeah. Um, huge different changes, the huge uh, shifts in worldview or anything like that, probably not. But... Uh, uh, 
but yeah, some changes, sure. Is it sometimes a difficult process, that act of discovery? It's almost, sometimes I think that you're, when you're writing, you're in the process of trying to tell yourself something that you didn't, didn't know, but also that you kind of don't want to embrace sometimes? It is, it is difficult, but it's, uh, it's a kind of uh, focus, uh, uh, attention uh, that I like. I like being lost in the process of, of, of writing. Uh, it's, the, it's the only time there is no time. It's the only time uh, you're not conscious uh, uh, that... Uh, uh, if you're going to die, for example. Uh, you don't uh, uh, think about that. Uh, it's I good just, not to not always be thinking about that, I think. Yeah. It's, it's good not to all the time, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your process. I found a great quote from you um, about the idea of truth, um, which, of course, I'm thinking about in terms of your, your memoir uh, list poem. Um, you said, facts are, irre- are irrelevant. A poet's job is to try to tell the truth. You can bend, change, invent facts all you want to try to do that. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Well, poetry is fiction, and uh, of course you can invent things and, and make things up uh, in order to try to tell the truth, a truth, to try. I never say that I can tell the truth. Uh, and I, don't, I think that's dangerous for any artist to say that, uh, that I have some kind of handle on the truth. But... Uh, uh, to try to tell, to tell the truth. I like what Emily said about Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Okay. You know, try to find some other angle into the, into the subject uh, while, while, you're, while, you're, while you're working on it. Try to make that kind of discovery. I don't know. It's a, it, part of it is mysterious, and the only way I can deal with that mystery is, is by, by working. Uh, and again, I, I really like the focus. I like the uh, uh, the, the narrow vision uh, when you're looking at a poem. Uh, I think I can work on probably the main reason I am a poet rather than, a, say, a prose writer uh, is uh, I can't look at big things like a novel. I can't even conceive of how a novelist uh, uh, you know, has all that in their head. Uh, but I can work on, on smaller things in great detail with, with real focus. Uh, with real attention. Uh, I forget who said, maybe it was uh, uh, Paul Celan, the, the uh, poet, the German poet, that said, uh, attention is a, is a kind of secular prayer. Uh, it's a kind, of, uh, uh, a, a, kind of, a kind of prayer, a kind of secular uh, prayer, where, where you're focused on, on something. It's a kind of Zen meditation process where you lose sense of yourself. Maybe. I don't know anything about uh, me, me neither, but, yeah. you know. Uh, I've heard that. <laughs> that doesn't stop me from saying things like, yeah, that's a Greek word. <laughs> I, don't, I, I remember Jerry Stern one time saying uh, uh, to a Buddhist friend of his, you Buddhists are too goddamn nice. That's your problem. You're all too goddamn nice. You're always so goddamn happy. Uh, <laughs> that was Gerald Stern who said that. <laughs> um Still talking about process and themes. I'm curious when when do you know that a poem is done? Yeah, the the, the old answer for that uh, was uh, poems are never uh, finished; uh, they're only abandoned. abandoned. Uh, I think Paul Valery said that. But uh, I like to think I finish poems. But how exactly? You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, the last three or four drafts, you, you start losing some attention. Uh, you're, you know, you're just kind of combing hairs in place. 
And you can never know if it's as finished as it, as it could be or is as good as it could be. But then the next poem just says, come on, you've got to pay attention to me now. It's time to let that one uh, go. So it's, an, it's intuitive. Uh, and, and just, you can just, I can just tell when I've, when I put enough into it, and, and I can tell sometimes if I put too much into it, uh, and, I, and I start uh, uh, over-revising or, or uh, um, just doing busy work on, yeah. on the poem. And that can be dangerous, because yeah. then you kind of kill the poem. Yeah. Yeah, that's no fun. Not at all, no. Right. Was it the Billy Collins that you, um, he's talking about interp- interpreting poems that you... You tie the poem to a chair yeah. and you beat it until its Be, secrets. Beat it with a rubber hose. Yeah, until uh, its yeah. secrets come out. Yeah. That's no fun. It's not. Uh, <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why people, uh, a lot of people, hate poetry. It's because uh, it's uh, not accessible to them. It excludes uh, people. Uh, two or three generations of us uh, grew up in our culture uh, disliking or being intimidated by poetry because we didn't understand it, and all of a sudden. Uh, in the 19th century, it wasn't like this, but the critic became the person who had to stand between the reader and uh, the writer to explain to the poor, dumb reader, who's just not quite smart enough anymore to understand poetry, what the poet was talking about. Uh, anybody, if you're looking at an art frame, yeah, we want to read about it, we want to read criticism, whatever. But uh, if something has to be explained to you by a professor, and usually with a kind of uh, you know, shaking finger uh, kind of thing... Uh, most of us are not going to enjoy that. That's not going to be a pleasurable uh, experience. Use the word entertainment. I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, word to use. Uh, I think poetry should be engaging, entertaining, uh, 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 just somehow uh, making the reader want to read the poem. I want to write poems, uh, ideally, that are not hard to read, but that are hard not to read. Uh, I want to make the reader want to read the poem. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, there's people who think, well, that's, you know, that's too simplistic or whatever. Uh, uh, and uh, there are still... Uh, do you, uh, do you uh, get criticized for that stance? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I've gotten uh, in trouble or criticized for, for bad-mouthing that, that kind of uh, poetry. Uh, huh. uh, it, 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 sure. What does that criticism sound like? I'm curious. Uh, I, I can't remember any exact <laughs> quotes. Uh, and uh, it, it's... No, just like you're not intellectual enough or something like that. Right. And then I asked him, how many books did you read uh, lately? And, uh, uh, <clears throat> Michael mentioned 100 books a year. That would include poetry. Uh, but I, re- I do read about 60, 70, 75 uh, full-length prose books, uh, almost always exclusively history, uh, various kinds of nonfiction, natural history, uh, etc., I'm almost embarrassed to say, particularly because I have lots of friends who are novelists, but I've only read one novel in the last, say, 15 years or so. Uh, I read all the great novels uh, at one time, but I've read relatively few contemporary novels, at least in the last 15 uh, years. And even one I can think of, and that had something to do with a a particular historical uh, uh, incident that I was interested uh, in. Um, Hmm. And you can see a lot of the poems start from things i've i've read i mean i in in medieval besieging of cities that's one of the things they did they catapulted bodies plague victims into the besieged uh, city sometimes they only shot their heads in uh sometimes the whole body 
Uh, and it was a kind of germ warfare and a psychological warfare yeah. as well. That would yeah. be disconcerting if you're in your little, you know, uh, little house in a besieged city. You're already eating rats and, 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 a, and, a, and a human head comes crashing through the thatch roof. Of I hate your, it when that happens. Yeah, I hate yeah. that. <laughs> So that was something that, that, that started, uh, struck me uh, to start a poem. Well, that makes me think of a question, and I hope somebody asks uh, the question, why no novels? But I'm going to leave that for somebody out there. Um, it, related to that, to that poem, and to, I mean, some of your poems are incredibly entertaining. Some of them are very, very learned. Some of them are incredibly violent. And I'm curious, um, I mean, my, my question is very sort of bland. It's, what about the violence? Well, and, and I'm curious. Well, one of my main subjects seems to be man's inhumanity to woman and man, and uh, it's something I quarrel with. And usually, if, if there's violence in the poem, the poem is quarreling with that violence or satirizing it. Most of the humor in my poems is is satirical. I'm uh, satirizing uh, things. I think it was Jefferson who said something like, uh, "Sometimes the only way uh, to respond to." incomprehensible positions uh, is by ridicule, is by, is by satire, by making fun of, of uh, you know, incredible kind of uh, cruelty or ignorance. Uh, uh, things. Sometimes that's the only recourse uh, that, that anyone has. And uh, so most of my humor is, is around that, and most of the violence uh, in the poems is from historical violence, and, and I'm quarreling with it. I'm saying what's... You know, it's, but who who wouldn't? Who anybody? Raise your hands. You love war, you love death, you love carnage. You love anybody? Love Hitler? Uh, you know, none of us uh, do. So I have to try to find uh, different ways, uh, my own angle at uh, uh, you know dealing with those subjects and uh, dealing with those quarrels uh, with the world uh, that that I have. And uh, and sometimes too, if you're, you're trying to do something that's really deadly serious. Uh, having something funny in it helps balance it. It doesn't. Uh, it just doesn't uh, seem like ponderous, uh, heavy-handed uh, seriousness. As if I'm lecturing to you. Like I said, nobody, nobody loves Hitler. Uh, uh, nobody's going to uh, quarrel with the poem if I uh, make fun of totalitarianism. I use uh, Hitler uh, just as an example, but there's all kinds of totalitarianism, and I, I loathe it. I loathe it, and. Uh, and, and, you know, aside from, you know, shooting uh, Hitler in the head, I didn't get a chance to do that. Uh, what recourse do I have? Or uh, I can't get my hands around Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, throat. He's a corpse. Uh, I, 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 have to, I have to deal with that kind of fanaticism uh, uh, in, in my own way. And it makes you mad. Makes me mad, yeah. And so you write poetry about it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's that one, the Hitler poem. I can't remember. Is it in Cradle Place or is it? I've, I'm not sure. I lost uh, my mark. There's a little poem called Hitler's Slippers. Uh, is it Gospel? Uh, yes. You know, people sent Hitler all sorts of gifts, and, and one woman spent a lot of time embroidering these slippers of hit, for Hitler with a swastika on it, and, and then it was surrounded by the rising sun, the, uh, the Japanese uh, flag. Uh, and this woman spent hundreds of hours probably delicately embroidering uh, these slippers. I had to find some way to yeah. uh, get that in a poem. Would you mind reading it? No, just sure. a little break. It's, it's not violent, but obviously 
the, the main character is, it, it's actually a very tender, creepy, tender kind of poem. That's okay. Sure. I'm not afraid of contradiction uh, uh, in individual poems or in, in my life. Uh, you say I contradict myself? All right, then, I contradict myself, said uh, Grandpa of American poetry, Walt Whitman. Hitler's slippers. Hitler's slippers were hand-embroidered, first with a round, red, rising sun, upon which, centered, was sewn the symbol. Who would bow for so long to such a crippled wheel by which his reign is known? Hitler's slippers were a gift. Someone else opened the package for him from a mother, grandmother, who bent over them for months. She knew no other way to serve him. Therefore, stitch by stitch, she adorned his slippers. Two-thirds of the axis represented Chow, Italy, already to please the leader's eyes when he slung his legs out of bed in the bunker to begin another day with dry toast, milk, and one egg poached. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Hitler's favorite breakfast was. (laughs) Uh, but, but he I, was, a, he was vegetarian, of course. Uh, but I actually had read it somewhere, but I, I failed to make a note on it, and I tried to find exactly what he liked to eat for breakfast. But that sounds like, you know, dry toast, some milk, and one egg. And then I wanted to poach it so it would rhyme with toast. Toast and poached. Uh, uh, there. But he becomes this sort of, this guy. Who yeah. Who wears slippers. Yeah, yeah. You made him human, which he was. He was human. He was sure. human, which is... That's the scary part. Right? Yeah. Uh, he was human. Talk about contradictions. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it related to that, I think um, one of the things I, loved about your, I love about your poetry is um, uh, not just the stuff, but the, um, the bugs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and often the bugs are, um, or the animals, snakes tarantulas, things like that, they're dangerous. Yeah. And I'm yeah. curious about that. Why? You know, snakes show up a lot in my poems. Somebody once asked me in an interview, what's with the snakes? What's with all the snakes? And I said, I, I really don't know, except everybody. Not many people are nuts about snakes, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, they go way back uh, in our deepest unconscious. Uh, you know, they're in, uh, they're, they're, they surprise us. Uh, I think that's one of the things that's uh, scary about them. Bugs? If it wasn't for dung beetles, the entire earth would be covered with a, with a crust of, uh, uh, like a cow pie. It would be covered like a giant cow pie, uh, up to about our clavicles, it's been estimated. Uh, we'd be walking around in, in dung up to our clavicles, the entire earth. So dung beetles are to be praised. They're, they're creatures to be praised. They do a lot of good uh, for for the earth. Uh, so I have a poem about praising uh, Uncle Dung Beetle, Uncle I call Dung him. Uh, uh, but again, all of this stuff comes from reading. Uh, things that I discuss. How else are you going to know about dung beetles? Uh, is there stuff on the internet about them? I haven't seen anything. Uh, probably there is. Uh, TV shows? Uh, no, I never saw any dung beetles on TV shows. <laughs> the only way uh, you can have access to things like this is, is from, from books. But, you know, there's this terrible conspiracy going on with uh, books. Uh, uh, They hide them in these places called libraries. Uh, They hide them in there. Then they hide them in in sometimes in places called bookstores. Now, why they 
they try to keep them from us like this by hiding them. I don't know, but uh, I think it's a conspiracy. And I'm not paranoid. I'm not, uh, <laughs> do you, when you go to a bookstore, do you check and see if they have your books? Sure, sometimes, yeah. 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 And they don't very often. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sucks, doesn't it? It happens. Yes. <laughs> anything that happens after you, you write a poem or publish a poem or a book or whatever, anything that happens after that is gravy. Anything is, after that is just a little bonus. Uh, even bad things, any kind of attention, negative, positive, is, is gravy. Uh, the point is to, to, to make them. Uh, you give them the world, you have no more control over them. Uh, so you, just, you can't worry about that. Afterwards, right, kind of like kids. Yeah, kind of yeah. like children. Yeah, like kids. And they call you from the subway. There's yeah. a poem of yours on that. That's great. Or for money. <laughs> really? They do that? Yeah. yeah. You'll find out. Oh boy. Well, I already now know. I already know. <laughs> now your kids are broke. Uh, they're not bald anymore. I assume uh, they're old enough. Uh, they probably have some friends now. Uh, they probably read a little bit, even. Uh, but they're broke. Yeah. Well, no, they got some cash stashed away. Some of them. <laughs> yeah. Various places. <laughs> um, I want to go back to that, 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 what you were talking about in terms of the state of poetry. And, and um, whoops. whoops. You had a New York Times interview, and, and um, you pretty much have already said a little bit of this. Um, you said, you say, um, a lot of people are put off by the obscurity of poems. A lot of people read poetry and they don't understand it, and it makes them feel resentful. They also tend to think if they don't understand it, that means it's good poetry, because you're not supposed to understand poetry. We've been conditioned in this century to believe this, and of course that makes a lot of people not want to read that. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's true. Uh, I've had people come up to me after readings and say almost sheepishly, apologetically, I really, I liked your poems, but there must be something wrong with them because I understood them. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's, that, yeah, I talked about a little bit earlier. It had a lot to do with modernism, of course, and, you know, then that's the, the critic's role changing uh, to be the explainer rather than just the person who separated the wheat from the chaff and told you their op- op- opinion. But uh, that that is true, and we're we're we were conditioned. Uh, you're not supposed to understand poetry. Poetry is some kind of riddle, uh, some kind of thing that you need to decipher. Now, there, any good poem, uh, you can look at it more carefully and and uh, and think about individual word choice and and why did he do this or or that. But that should be accessible to 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 me to any literate reader of, of goodwill, uh, not not. You don't need a PhD, or you don't need to be a professor to uh, to read or understand poetry. I mean, it yeah. it was sto- it was robbed from us uh, for almost a century. Sometimes I feel like you need a secret decoder ring. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. In the 19th century, uh, almost every every home in America had some poetry in it. Often, it was just the Bible, but people read poetry out loud to each other. Illiterate people knew poetry, listened to poetry, often memorized uh, poetry, but that it, that did change with modernism. I'm, I'm not, gonna, not knocking T.S. Eliot or, or Yeats or Stevens or Hart Crane. Or, uh, they were great, great uh, poets, but they did uh, uh, they did create this. Their poetry or the critics, uh, uh, the professors uh, uh, did create that uh, confusion. 
Eli himself said all the wasteland was was rhythmic grumbling. And that's all the poem is. It's about uh, uh, historical and personal despair. And the, the, all the footnotes on that, uh, on that poem were added just as a kind of a joke uh, in, in order to make that poem uh, f- be a full-length uh, book poem uh, and still a very thin uh, book as when it's printed alone. Uh, uh, rhythmic grumblings. And, but for, for decades, uh, scholars, professors were nuts over those uh, uh, footnotes, chasing down references and stuff like that. It just... Take, takes the, the beauty and the joy out of that poem. Read that poem out loud. That's all you have to do. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, to yeah. get it. Uh, you don't need to read the Sanskrit. I don't think that really helps. No. No. No, no I don't think uh, so. Um, and I think there's also, it's become a closed circle where the critics are other poets. Often. So often. The critics interpret the poets' poems, and then those poets... Interpret- and they're, if they are poets, they're, they're writing from... From, from their aesthetic, or their core uh, arguing uh, for their aesthetic by, uh, uh, by arguing that poetry shouldn't be accessible to, uh, to, to, to many people anymore. That you need to be an initiated, you need to be in a special uh, club. I want to slap people in, uh, uh, like that. Uh, that's, just, that's rude. Primo uh, uh, Levy said something about writers who write uh, deliberately, obscurely. He said... Uh, it's like a kind of a pre-suicide, uh, a not wanting to be. And then he said, besides that, it's rude. <laughs> it, and it is. It's rude to expect someone, if you write something, expect someone to read it, and it's, and it's pretty much incomprehensible to them. That's just like slapping them in the face. That's rude. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean poetry either can't be rich and complex and original and, and odd and, you know, all of those things, it can still be all of those things, but be accessible enough uh, for, for any, uh, you know, basically literate reader of, of goodwill. I think you said last night that it's, or in another interview, you said it's not just being accessible, or as, or as um, Billy Collins says, it should be hospitable. hospitable. The poem should yeah. be hospitable. I like that word. Kind of uh, uh, and I think there's the idea that when you understand what's going on in the poem, the mystery can still be in there, but it's sure. not in the mystery of what is the poem right, talking right. about. Mystery is good if it's reverberant. Of mystery. Life is full of mystery, but it, but it does need to be uh, somehow reverberant. Or you get it first with your gut, uh, with, your, with your bone marrow. Uh, I like another thing. I like a lot of things Billy uh, Collins says about poetry, and I, also am a, uh, I think he's a fantastic poet. Uh, but he said, uh, teaching poetry, we should teach poetry backwards in schools, i.e. start by teaching uh, contemporary poetry. Uh, poetry is spoken in the language we speak today. Uh, poetry is accessible uh, to even uh, you know, high school or junior high school or middle school uh, kids. Uh, I think we underestimate those uh, age. I'm just looking at paintings by 7th and 8th graders, artwork up here. It's just astonishing to me how good these kids uh, are. Uh, start by... by teaching uh, accessible poetry, and then go back to the, you know, the romantics and maybe end up with the fairy queen somewhere, uh, uh, you know, way down the line. Uh, uh, anybody who's still there. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but you don't get kids excited, young people excited about poetry by starting with, uh, you know, Paradise Lost uh, or, or the fairy. Those are great poems, but that's not how you get poems, uh, younger people anyway excited, or even any new reader of, of poetry. 
no matter what age. In another interview, you talk about, just to talk about more about craft, um, you talk about you consider when you're writing your poems that they are to be read aloud. Yeah. That poetry, as Robert Pinsky says, is a vocal art. Sure. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. I mean, I'm, every word I write is meant to be, they're meant to uh, be human speech. And like I think I said earlier, uh, some guy just talking. Usually the speaker of my poems is a little bit agitated. Uh, sometimes he's a little sadder or quieter, but more often than not, he's a little agitated about something. Not necessarily angry, but, uh, but excited, agitated uh, uh, a little bit. And uh, uh, I have to pay attention to every, every line break, uh, every syntactical uh, uh, thing going on in the poem. Uh, there's so many uh, kinds of variation that one needs to be aware of in, in writing anything, but you have to vary your sentence length. You have to vary your syntactical Arrangement. Uh, you have to. You just have to pay attention to, to everything, uh, uh, in order to make it sound like it's just some some guy talking. Some guy talking. Uh, yeah. Uh, what makes for a good line of poetry? I think uh, there is almost an objective way to to, to judge uh, poetry, and Theodore uh, uh, Retke says uh, one way he judges. Uh, he, he suggests if you're writing a poem. At a certain point in composition, not your second or first or second draft maybe, but two or three drafts in, uh, you try to figure out what the best line of the poem is. And then your job the rest of the way is to get every line up to that level. Then he said he takes it one step further and he said that every, any single line you should be able to isolate, pull out of the poem, and that line itself uh, should be able to stand alone as a poem. Now, that's almost impossible uh, to do, uh, and certainly very frequently. But meaning, there's got to be something in every line that's, that somehow does something. Uh, a good verb, good di- diction, some, some, some music. Uh, uh, it needs to be clear that, it's, that it is distilled, that, it's, that it's, there's no excess language, no unnecessary uh, language, uh, that we avoid uh, polysyllabic words uh, uh, not completely, of course, but uh, polysyllabic words uh, are almost always telling words. They're almost always abstract words. Uh, we need to avoid things as much as possible like adverbs. Adverbs are the weakest part of speech. And good verbs absorb their adverbs. Good, good verbs uh, have the ad- adverb already inside of them. So, uh, so you, can, you can actually objectively, uh, if, if you read poetry by my standards, uh, uh, my own personal rules. I'm not saying anybody, everybody has to, but I, I can judge a line like that. It's got to be something good in that line, something fresh, something uh, uh, engaging, yeah. even an individual word uh, sometimes. Sometimes poet write, poets write poems, and I do, just as an excuse so you can work, use certain words. Uh, you love uh, words, not just because of their dictionary meaning, of course, but uh, because mostly for poets, they're connotations, they're reverberations. Uh, words to poets are like, lem- Emily said, uh, like lemon drops. You take it on and you taste it first on the tip of your tongue, and then you toss it around the other side of your mouth, then you toss it around the other side. Uh, <laughs> words are palpable kinds of things. They're not just these these things that lie in, in, in dictionaries. All the stuff during the, the heyday of the, uh, what were they, uh, you know, Derrida and people like that, uh, uh, 
uh, yeah, all of that uh, <laughs> structuralism and de deconstruction and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, uh, I forgot where I was going with this, but it'll it'll come back uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a minute, maybe. But uh, uh, <laughs> that was just a, a crazy period, uh, and and all of a sudden the author didn't. The author was dead, and uh, and I actually had somebody, one of these people, said this to me one time. Everybody, he said, everybody knows that poetry and novels are are no good anymore, and and language is uh, uh, what's the word they use that. Uh, I have it in a poem. Language indeterminate. You can't trust language. Angu language is indeterminate. Can't trust language. The new art is is writing this kind of uh, uh, criticism. Of course, language is indeterminate, uh, but it's still the best bleeping thing we have to communicate with each other. Is there anything? Well, music is pretty good. Uh, you know, painting is good, but but language is still the best thing we have to communicate with with each other. And these this whining about how it's not perfect and it's indeterminate and uh, and then writing completely incomprehensibly about how this is wrong. It's Using just, language it's to do that, silly. make that argument, yeah. You know what killed that whole movement? Some people uh, had a computer generate uh, complete gobbledygook using a lot of the, the language uh, that these uh, deconstructionists, whatever they're called, uh, uh, used and uh, had a computer generate a complete gobbledygook essay, uh, just complete nonsense, made no sense whatsoever, sent it to the leading uh, uh, magazine that published these kinds of things, and they took it. <laughs> and then when they were exposed, uh, they said, oh, we still like it anyway. <laughs> you don't hear about much about those people anymore. There's no defense against that. Um, well, I want to move, move on a little bit away from craft and poetry, so um, I call this the lightning round. Okay. And then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Um, so, uh, these are pretty random. Okay. What sorts of things are on your desk right now? At my desk at home, uh, I try to keep it pretty clean, but I have my, uh, my laptop, which is what I write on, and a printer, and a, there's a jar of uh, pencils and pens. And a... I thought you were going to say maraschino cherries. No. <laughs> Sorry. I did get a lot of cherries after that poem was so... Uh, Printed, but uh, uh, not much. I like a, a kind of spare uh, desk. But I do write in a room that's filled with books. Uh, I, last time I tried to count or had somebody do it, made a graduate student try to do this uh, for me, I had about uh, maybe 7,000 books, and that was 10 or 12 years ago. So I think I could probably got about 8,000 books. And my goal is to die with uh, 10,000 uh, books. <laughs> Borges said something like, I, I can't sleep in a room unless it's filled with books. And, and that's true of me. I have them in my a whole wall in my bedroom as well as in my uh, study. Uh, I like books as objects. I like the smell of books. Uh, and, of course, I like to read them. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are you currently working on? Uh, I've just finished uh, uh, mostly finishing uh, editing and copy edit and stuff like that, both this new book of poems and, uh, and, a, and a prose book uh, that I've been written, writing in pieces over the years. Uh, and right now I'm, excuse me, I'm waiting for the uh, time when school is over, which is any day now, and I have a, excuse me again, a stretch of time where I can write uh, every day. And I have a, a lot of little poems buzzing around in the beginnings, uh, vague little hints uh, buzzing in my head and some notes and 
titles and stuff like that, and I'll start a new batch of poems uh, pretty soon. And you write every day, typically? No, no, I don't write every day. I do read every day, and reading is it, it, reading is eighty percent of writing, uh, I believe. And uh, but I don't write every day. I write when I when I when I know I can write for for at least several uh, consecutive uh, days. So mostly because I've, I'm a teacher. Uh, I do most of my real writing in the, in the summers or during breaks, but save stuff up all the time, thinking notes, notebook, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. What's your favorite color? Probably blue. blue. Somebody told me once I wear too much blue. <laughs> I said, so the fuck what? <laughs> Brings out your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your most favorite thing to do besides writing and reading? Gee. Speak about violence, but one of, the I, one of the things I like to do is shoot guns. Uh, I grew up with guns uh, in the country on a farm, and uh, and in Georgia, uh, shooting guns is like going to a like going bowling or something. Like that. Uh, I don't I don't, I don't hunt. Uh, I only shoot at paper uh, targets, but uh, I like to shoot guns. Uh, huh. How many guns do you own? This is not. I did not expect this. This is interesting. Uh, I have a couple long guns and uh, four or five handguns. Yeah. Anybody else here? Anybody packing? <laughs> uh, In Colorado, another, you can. One you of can, the things uh, I like about uh, shooting is, again, the responsibility and the focus and the attention. You, shooting, uh, you know, guns are lethal uh, weapons, so there's no fooling around when you're when you're uh, at a shooting range. There's very strict rules, very uh, various, uh, you know, safety things, uh, and the slightest aberration is, you know, is frowned upon. And uh, you just you just you have to do it right. You have to focus. It's because it's potentially dangerous. And uh, and I, just like I like to focus on a, on the poem, uh, the attention, the focus, the responsibility. I, I think that's what I like about uh, shooting. Huh. Uh, There's a certain art to it, in a way. Well, it's a, I wouldn't say it's an art, but uh, it's, it takes practice. Uh, uh, you need to know the, the gun and how to take care of it, how to operate it. And, uh-huh. and, you, know, you need to know the rules. Yeah. Uh, and unlike uh, art or poetry, uh, you learn the rules, and then you can break them or bend them however you want. But uh, in, the, in, in, in shooting... Uh, you can't break the rules ever. You don't be- break the rules uh, ever because uh, that could could be dangerous. For sure, yeah. Um, if you hadn't become a writer, what do you think you'd be doing every day? Probably be working in a box factory, uh, uh, something like that. I had no, I have no other uh, talents what, whatsoever. Uh, uh, I thought I would be a high school English teacher, and I, like I said, I wanted to w- work with special needs uh, kids, so I, 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 I could have done uh, that. Uh, but and you mentioned in your introduction that, uh, about teaching, and I really do love teaching. I have been teaching for a very long time, uh, 40 years. I started uh, when I was only one semester out of college. I started uh, teaching, and... Uh, in college, and, and I really like it. Uh, it's, I never have to get myself up for it. I never feel, oh, geez, I don't wish I didn't have to do this today. Uh, I, I, I turn into a different kind of person in the classroom. I get excited. I, uh, uh, I want to talk about poetry. And uh, uh, 
So that's a great uh, pleasure for me. Still. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, in interviews, I thought that, was, uh, that really made me feel happy to, to, to hear you say that. That was great. Yeah, a lot of writers, I think, teach just because they figure that's, it's almost a privilege. Uh, and it does, it's a profession where you have more time to write than uh, other professions, maybe. But, uh, but I don't think you should teach unless you really want to. And I know a lot of writers who are very indifferent, but they have teaching jobs. And I don't think they should be teaching if, uh, if, 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 if that's your attitude about mm-hmm. teaching. But be passionate about it. Yeah. If you could have a dinner party of three of your favorite writers, dead or alive, who would they be? Hart Crane, Charles Baudelaire, and uh, Emily Dickinson. You don't want to think about that? <laughs> and, uh, well, heck, who would the, for, who would the fourth more, be? Yeah. It would be Walt, uh, Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. Yeah. It's funny, I, um, I recently started listening to um, Leaves of Grass on the way to work um, on CD. That's a pretty sexy poem. I yes, forgot. It yes, it is. Well, it was almost uh, you know, brought to trial. It was certainly oh, yeah. censured and uh, things like that. And things we would hardly blink at today. But yeah, it's very sensuous, uh, a lot of it. Uh, Lots of sweaty people yeah, with yeah. glistening skin. Love roots and things like yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sweathearts. Sweathearts, lots of sweathearts, yeah. I love that Whitman and, and Dickinson are the mothers and father, grandmother, grandfather of uh, American poetry. You know, they were the first true American poets, and that wasn't, it was only like 150, 60 years ago. Uh, uh, our, our literature, American literature, before that was essentially English literature based on the English model. So our literature, American literature, is pretty much in its infancy compared to many other uh, uh, literatures, French, Greek, uh, you know, Italian, uh, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, uh, thousands of years old. But our, our literature is still in its Infancy, but I love that that Walt and Emily are are our first great American poets because they couldn't be any different. There's no don't, right. no two poets that are that are more different. And what's more American than that? Than 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 allowing that great range and that that great difference in our two greatest poets still to uh, still pretty inarguably our our greatest poets. So I love that that they're they're so yeah. different. Very well said. Um, what's a, a favorite work of art? Painting, sculpture? I love a lot. I love painting. Uh, I like uh, looking at, at paintings. But uh, I don't know who I probably Van Gogh. I love looking at uh, Van Gogh. Uh, mostly uh, the other arts that I, that, I, that I love, like I love music, uh, I love painting. Uh, uh, I just don't have uh, enough time to... Uh, uh, to, to devote to it, I'd rather, I'd rather read. Uh, uh, I can't listen to music while I'm while I'm writing or reading. A lot of writers I know have to have music playing when they're writing, and often like loud rock and roll and stuff like that. But yeah. uh, I can't concentrate uh, on on music if I'm writing or reading. So uh, I have to expose myself to the other arts uh, just whenever I, I can, and I have to try to do it. Uh, more. Somebody once told me that I was monocultural, that I only liked uh, uh, writing and uh, books and literature. So, I, it's probably true. <laughs> but but I, lo- I love painting, but I wish I, I, had no, I had no talent for it. I love color. Um, but 
Uh, last question. What's your favorite swear word? Oh, uh, was, were you here when Mary Carr was here? Uh, the same word that she uses probably more frequently than I do. Uh, You'd be surprised what her swear word was. Uh, I've heard Mary talk for many years, and it's uh, lots of. She mother, uses a lot of them. Lots she has, of she has a wide in there. Variety, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what did she say? I don't think I can say it. It's, get, it's often referred, um, used in reference to a cat. Cat. <laughs> there are. Um, Two S's in there somewhere. And the, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought she was going to say, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the other, other one. Bleeper, F- uh, I've yeah, heard but. from Mary uh, uh, a number of times. You know, there's a, there's a, a metrical thing to that word. Uh, mother bleeper is, is two trochies uh, in a row, two trochaic feet, uh, short, long, uh, long, short, uh, long, short. Uh, trochees tumble down. They move faster. They, they're, they're descending. English, by nature, is an ascending language. That's why most of our, if we, you scanned anything we said today, it would be mostly iams and anapests ascending from unstressed syllables to stress. <laughs> uh, mother bleeper is two trochees. And so it, it, it is... You're so modest. You're it, saying mother bleeper. Yeah. Well, there might be children <laughs> in the audience. And, uh, uh, Just my daughter's here. That's it, I think. Uh, so, so it's an appropriate uh, uh, curse word. And you can uh, bleep say, you is a spondy, you know. Help, shark, you know. Uh, uh, so there are metrical reasons why. Uh, 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 but sometimes I, I say to my students that I, if if I let slip uh, the, the F word, I'll say uh, uh, I'm just. It's just because I'm I'm excited and. Uh, uh, <laughs> And I also say, you know, that's, those aren't the real obscenities in our language. Uh, the F word or those seven words we're not supposed to say on TV or anything like that. The real obscenities in our language are words like nigger. That's an obscenity. Uh, words that, that diminish other uh, people, kike, uh, uh, you know, uh, spick, uh, those are obscenities. And those will, would not, never be tolerated in, in, in anything I ever uh, write, or anybody I would never use those words. Uh, uh, but those are obscenities. Uh, to, to, to imagine that nobody has ever heard the F word before and we have to be so careful about it is, is kind of silly, uh, uh, really. But it's also just polite to try to avoid it. Uh, and it's lazy, uh, lazy speech habits. Uh, if you overuse uh, those kinds of words, it's just lazy speech habit. So I make that little speech, and then I say whatever I uh, have to say. <laughs> Excellent. So let's turn it over to questions from the audience. The novel... It was a novel having to do with uh, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, uh, the, the Nazi uh, uh, who was uh, the Reich protector of, of Czechoslovakia, and he was uh, assassinated by some Czech uh, uh, partisans who, were, um, who parachuted into uh, Czechoslovakia in 1942 and assassinated uh, him. And it was a novel based on, on, on that. That my copy editor sent me because he had copy edited it, and he and I had a poem about Heydrich in my book, which he new book, which he talked me into 
taking out of the book, but he sent me this novel, and, and, uh, and I read it. It's embarrassing, because I have friends who, are, who write novels, and, and I, it's, it's embarrassing when they send you a novel, and uh, I, I don't know why. You were going to ask me why I stopped so somebody asked. Just because I, I wanted to read more history and nonfiction. Uh, that's all. There just wasn't time to read, uh, read novels anymore. Uh, Maybe I will go back to them someday. Who, who knows? But uh, you might run out of nonfiction books. Too. Maybe run out of nonfiction or history, <laughs> but maybe probably not. But uh, uh, did you read um, Lit by Mary Carr? Yes. Yeah, I read. Uh, 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 I read a lot of biographies uh, yeah. too, and particularly biographies of writers. But uh, but I have read uh, uh, all of Mary's books, and and my other friends who have written uh, memoirs, yeah. Uh, yeah. and lots of I've read quite a few memoirs. Uh, not as many as a lot of people, and I don't, I don't. I'm a little bit embarrassed about, you know, talking about yourself uh, so much. Uh, maybe growing up in uh, kind of New England, uh, Yankee, whatever, uh, uh, it was, it was, it was kind of bad manners to talk about yourself. Uh, you just mm. didn't. You weren't supposed to do that. Uh, and uh, I'm always a little wary about that. And even my uh, somewhat autobiographical poems are. Uh, <clears throat> There's a lot of stuff that didn't really happen or that's made up uh, 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 in them. So, so I just have a little discomfort with, yeah. uh, with uh, autobiographical stuff. Um, I, I just asked that about Mary Carr because you, you um, play a role in that, and you said that there was something funny about one of the details that she supposedly got wrong. I don't remember what that was. Uh... I said oh, oh, yeah, every yeah. time he appears in Lit, he's, yeah. he's barbecuing. Yeah, um, he has a scene where I'm barbecuing, uh, and and she had me wearing a pair of speedos, uh, <laughs> and I I said, Mary, I never wore a pair of goddamn speedos in my life. When you put this in a book, you better change that. And she did to baggies. She changed it to baggies or something like that. Surf shorts. Yeah. 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 I don't think I ever wore them, but that was better than speedos. <laughs> Either. Uh, yes. Question. I didn't quite hear the last part of that. When they say, uh, well, uh, you know what I'll, what I'll say? And this, again, might, it might sound a little rude, but uh, I say, uh, are you fucking deaf? <laughs> Usually I, 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 I say bleeping. Uh, but uh, my my poems are filled with rhyme. They just don't come uh, at, at the at, ex, at that expected place where we're used to most used to hearing a rhyme, which is on the on the fifth uh, foot of an iambic pentameter line. That's either going to rhyme with the next line as a couplet, or rhyme with the third, the first and third, and second and fourth, the quatrain, which are the two most common rhyme schemes in English. But uh, my poems are, are loaded with, with rhyme, uh, uh, sometimes end rhyme, sometimes uh, 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 internal rhyme, but uh, all sorts of half rhyme, off rhyme, uh, uh, as well as uh, full rhyme. Uh, I pay a lot of attention to the, to the, to the sounds of, of a poem, uh, but they're just not coming in those. Sometimes I write poems. I have a new poem in this book that's in uh, rhyme couplets. Uh, really? And I've written in poems in virtually every received uh, form. Uh, 
sonnets and villanelles and sestinas and pantoums and uh, on and on. I, in fact, I think that's important for any young writer uh, to, to write poet, to, to write poems in all the received uh, forms, to learn your trade, learn your craft. Uh, Yeats is pounding a table in a poem saying, uh, Irish poets, learn your trade. And uh, American poets, have to, we have to learn our trade too. It's an art form, it's a craft, and there's a huge amount to, to learn about it. And, you know, you try to just absorb it and let it uh, become part of the furnishing of your unconscious, uh, uh, but... Uh, but rhyme is incredibly important. Next question? How about here and then? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you were asked about your favorite swear words, and you, were also, and you also talked a bit about centering a poem around one word. Do you have a word that is kind of your favorite word just because you like the sound of the word? I don't think one, but uh, there there are several words that I... That I uh, Put in poems, just uh, I mean, written poems around, just because I wanted to use uh, 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 that word. I, I can't think of one individual word uh, uh, right now. If I flip through a, a book, I could, I would uh, uh, find one uh, here or there. Uh, well, here's one: a cordon sanitaire. I ran across that word somewhere. Uh, it's a kind of a buffer zone between two. Uh, uh, you know, warring or uh, troubled uh, uh, countries. Uh, cordon sanitaire, somehow the, the word sanitary uh, in, in, in that context engaged me. Uh, uh, and here's one called an erg, E-R-G. Uh, an erg is like a, a desert within a desert. It's like the most deserty part of the desert. Uh, uh, <laughs> Just like the sound, erg, you know. Uh, uh, sometimes they're more uh, uh, sonorous uh, kinds of, of words. Uh, those would be a, a couple uh, a couple examples uh, uh, there. Here's a poem called Slimehead, and uh, uh, that's a kind of fish that you most of you have eaten. Uh, but it's not called Slimehead in the restaurant because uh, you wouldn't order it. But it, anybody ever eat Orange Ruffy? Its real name is Slimehead. Uh, and when, it's, when, it, when you pull it out of the ocean, its head exudes this slime, this kind of slime. Uh, that wouldn't fly in a restaurant. Uh, so stuff like that engages my imagination. For that particular poem, I... Uh, I did some research. I even got pictures of these fish and stuff like that and learned about them. I uh, uh, can't remember exactly what the, what the ultimate point of that poem was. but uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's a love poem. It's a kind of love poem, yeah. 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 <laughs> At some point I say, I'd like to roll inside a shoal of them. See the rhyme there, roll and shoal? That's in the same line, uh, those two words. Uh, down where nobody goes. There's this rhyme again. Nobody goes. Oh, oh. So I've, made, I've hit four O oh sounds there in uh, just two lines. To know what they know. Oh, oh. I'm, I'm repeating this O oh sound. Retke called it the open evocative O. Oh. Down there with the hokey. That's a kind of fish. Hake. Another O oh sound. Rat tail. Oreo dory. That's a kind of fish. And that's... 
That's the word that made me want to uh, start this poem before I even got the slime head. There's a fish called Oreo Dory. How could you not uh, like that? My dear slime heads and their countrymen, the shy, prolific uh, squid. There's more squid than pra- more species of squid than practically any other uh, ocean uh, creature. Uh, but uh, sometimes you just like words and you wanna wanna use them. Oreo Dory. Oreo Dory. Right. Hokey, H-O-K-I, is a kind of fish. Yeah. Hake. There I'm playing with the uh, the alliteration, which is the most common form of, of rhyme, uh, initial uh, alliteration. There was a question down here, and then we'll take one more, I think. After. Oh, oh. Okay, hold on. It, then, and then, okay. Uh, J.D., did you have a question, or Chris? See, that's a good question. First of all, I just want to shake their hands and thank them and say thank you. Uh, uh, you've given me uh, you've given me great gifts. Then uh, uh, I'd ask Emily some kind of personal uh, questions, like uh, uh, you know, everybody. Uh, she, a lot of the things about her I don't think are true. Uh, she, she knew she was a genius. She knew that Livia was not going to burn her, her, her poems. Uh, she, I, I believe she was in seclusion uh, for, for most of her later uh, years. I, I read a book that um, talked about this recently uh, because she was epileptic. And in those days, epilepsy was a shameful uh, thing. And if you were you had an epileptic in your family, you often locked them up in the in the basement or in the attic or something like that. You kept them isolated. And I'd ask her the truth about uh, uh, that. Uh, and uh, uh, I'd ask her if if she was in love with uh, Judge Lord or who the so-called master letters were written to. I don't really think they were written to anybody uh, Higginson or that first minister uh, she had a crush on. Uh, uh, I think she knew she was just so much, she was a genius, and, uh, and she was too modest to go around talking about that. But uh, I, So I would ask her about the, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'd ask Walt uh, about uh, the nursing he did uh, of soldiers uh, during the war. Uh, he, uh, <clears throat> you know, he wasn't a nurse or a doctor, but he would go to the hospitals in Washington where the wounded soldiers were, and he would write letters for them and bring them candy and, and stuff like that. And hundreds of uh, uh, soldiers literally died in his arms. I mean, these were you know, wards where people were mostly dying left and, and right. And uh, many, many Union soldiers, maybe some Confederate soldiers too, died in his arms. And a lot of them wrote letters that, that survived, wrote letters to him later, named children after him, uh, etc. But I would have wanted to know... Uh, more about that and how he found the strength to, to do that and the courage. It broke his own health. So I would, I'd ask him stuff like that. And uh, uh, he said something about baseball, too, and I would, uh, I would ask him about that. <laughs> okay, so... Um... Of my own? I, don't, I can't say I have a favorite. Uh, and if I did, it would be one of the more recent poems, and that's a fairly standard uh, answer for, for most writers, I know, but we always are uh, 
we, we like to think that the poems we're writing at the time or the most recent poems are our best poems, and uh, uh, you don't, we don't know. Nobody's going to know anything. Uh, it, you can go crazy wondering about, you know, how good is this or what's going to last or not. That's not going to be decided till about 100 years after everybody in this room is, is dead. And uh, so, so you really have no control out of it. All you, have to, all you can do is write as hard, as well uh, as you can, and uh, that's it. Can't worry about um, Uh, it's actually just a collection of uh, nonfiction articles I wrote over several years uh, for a, a, a weekly newspaper in San Diego called the San Diego Reader. Uh, and uh, it started when the editor called me, and she knew uh, from some of my poems I grew up in a dairy farm, and she wanted me to write about one of the last dairy farmers in San Diego County. And, and I started doing it, and they let me do some weird stuff, like uh, write about uh, I got hypnotized left and right. Uh, I, I, I uh, learned how to eat fire and wrote about fire eaters. Uh, uh, did a lot of cop stuff. I got to ride around with cops a lot. Uh, uh, forensic uh, uh, people at uh, cop uh, police stations. Uh, stuff like that. They all had to be fairly lengthy, at least 6,000 words. And, uh, and, and so there was room to range around. I managed to get poetry stuff in a lot of them uh, uh, some, some way or another. Uh, uh, but it was it was fun for me to do, very different, and I got to meet all sorts of people I never would have uh, met before. Uh, I loved going around with cops. Uh, I really dug that, uh, even though it was scary uh, sometimes. But uh, I loved riding around with them. That's true. Yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's called. It's from Merrick Press. M A R. ICK, uh, it's called From the Southland, which is what that part of uh, California is called, the Southland. Uh, we have several of uh, several of Tom's books for sale. Unfortunately, that one is... Yeah, not it's not even hard. really quite out yet. Uh, it, I guess there's some copies for sale uh, on the Internet or on Amazon, but uh, uh, it's, not, it's just on the verge of coming out. Take one final question. Yes. Love connections. Uh, I love all of them. Uh, I love all of them. I wouldn't want to sleep with any of them. Uh, but, I, but I love all of those. As human beings, I love them. You know, another one I would have had even maybe before uh, would be uh, John Keats. Uh, I love these... I love them as human beings. Uh, even if they weren't writers, I would love Walt. I would love John Keats. Uh, he was just a sweet and good, good man. And uh, and Emily was a was a good, good human being. And uh, uh, but yeah, that kind of love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, one final, final question. Yes. <laughs> Many uh, different ones, and uh, a lot about uh, World War II, uh, particularly the European theater. Read a great deal of medieval uh, uh, history, uh, 
I've read a huge amount of 19th century uh, history, mostly American. Uh, I'll go in a certain area and read uh, many books, uh, in no way systematically, just uh, uh, randomly. I read books that, uh, I go to bookstores that, that tell me that they want me to, to, to read them. Uh, so I'll read in a lot of different uh, areas and then jump to another one and uh, um, just kind of get on different uh, jags. But those are the three or four main uh, uh, areas probably. Uh, I love 19th century uh, history and, and literature. And uh, I have read a great deal. American history, European uh, as well. Uh, can't read enough. I wish there was more time <laughs> to read. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you. Thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.